welcome. My name is Hardin Coleman. I'm faculty director of the uh, Center for Character and Social Responsibility at uh, uh, the BU Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. And I want to welcome you to um, this series and conversations we're having with leaders uh, in the uh, off in the educational space. Both we've had a PK-12 group, and now honored to be with a group of colleagues in around the higher ed space, talking about the ways in which uh, caring, caring. Uh, the ethic of caring, a focus on one's own and, and others' character development, and, and building community is part of leadership, particularly in times of crisis and how those struggles have been. Many of you have had opportunities to read, see the individual uh, podcasts that our, 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 our friends have, have shared with us. And today we want to have an opportunity for them to talk with each other. And in particular, I've asked them to focus today on given where they are and with our increased focus on access and opportunity and building a more inclusive belonging community, what are their thoughts about the future? As we look forward to the next five years, and I'm one of the ones who believes we're in this window of opportunity to drive some real change in the, in the, in the culture and the values of our society as represented what happens in higher ed institutions. And we had this opportunity to make change. And you as leaders, I think uh, all of you are gonna uh, pushing us in really powerful, important ways. So what I've asked people to do is kind of think, give us around five minutes of their time, talking about what their views of the future are, and then have some interchange among, among um, our presenters, and then open it up to people in the audience uh, to share thoughts and comments. Um, so I'm going to go in the order in which I've known people. Uh, I won't do big introductions, so uh, you can give a little brief introduction for each of yourselves when you start. So I want to start with Don Pope Davis, with whom I've had a decades-long uh, collegial relationship and, and then worked together and co-authored together. Thank you, Hart. Thank you, Hardin. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, um, Thank you for the opportunity to have these conversations. It's always, it's always interesting when we begin these conversations about what's the future of education going to look like, what we anticipate occurring. I, 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 I want to rephrase that in the sense of saying the future is now. Um, part of it is how we think about uh, what's happening in our society and where we go from here. We, we have a moment, and I, I believe in higher education, where, where we're coming out of this model uh, of uh, social change, social unrest, addressing some historical legacies, uh, one which has been around for 400 years, another one which started about two years ago. And so part of it is thinking through uh, what implications does that all have in education? And so we see as we uh, engage again in higher education that students, faculty, staff, and communities are beginning to talk about issues or at least uh, have animated discussions about a variety of topics, both in local school districts, uh, uh, PTA meetings, uh, various uh, culturally diverse communities, uh, as the case may be. And so the, the, question, the question might be, where, where is this all leading? And, and I would be the first to say, I don't know that answer, but, but I think a slice of it from where I sit is that the model that we currently have today in higher education is not sustainable. Um, the, the disruption has already begun to occur. I remember a few years ago, a number of economists talking about the next bubble to burst will be higher education. And it didn't happen as quickly as other bubbles 
uh, burst, but it, it, it happened over the last two years. And so the question is, what do we look like and what are we going to look like as we move forward? I want to suggest uh, three possibilities. Um, one is that uh, um, education, if, you, if we were to dream about possibilities, uh, I, I would imagine a model where at some point uh, education, uh, as we have historically known it, won't be limited to one university or one college, that people will be able to hop from one institution to another because of their interest in particular technologies, education models, exposing to different uh, cultural pedagogical models and so forth. And so while some of this is already emerging, the notion of how do people get credit for that in terms of pursuing a degree. I think we will also be challenged to think about um, um, who gives out a degree and what does a degree look like in that kind of an environment, given the need given the need to cut across cultures and, and attitudes perspective, and again, as I've said, in terms of pedagogical models. And lastly, what role does, does issues that are central to many communities of social justice, equity, and engagement play in the pedagogical models that we are currently engaged in, and how do we move that enterprise forward? What role does the academy have in integrating that into their environment into their discussions and, and collaborating in some ways well, with the communities. I'm gonna stop there and give my colleagues an opportunity to share their perspective. Great, thanks. Ken, can you? Sure, thanks Hardin, thanks for having me. And uh, Don, I'm, I'm gonna work off of that university uh, sort of city idea, that notion that I think the future is really going to have to be one where uh, I, I was going to say the city state, but I think the university is the city. The city is the university on some levels because um, we are finding, I think, more and more, and especially here in Boston, we the kind of role that we play in terms of our connections with the city and how vital they, they are. Uh, a lot of interesting things are happening in Boston around that, and I think that it's a start. You know, uh, overall, though, just backing up a bit, um, you know, I think that what we've got to do and uh, looking to the future and we can do this is uh, how we go from hopes and dreams to solutions. And we've shown that we could do that. Uh, I, I think one of the great stories in higher education actually was that we we really were innovative about 18 months or two years ago. We on a dime had to turn these Byzantine institutions that we're part of. We had to turn a ship around on a dime in the middle of the ocean. And we did. Uh, and there were a lot of people who said, this is going to, this is what's going to break us. So I'm coming out of this with hope, uh, real, real hope. The, the, the other piece, too, is I'm, I'm the, the hope that I'm looking for is beyond the technological. Uh, I think that we have spent an incredible amount of time dealing with COVID on the technical sense. Uh, and, and as we do, the science, the medicine. Uh, but I just don't think that we, we worked enough on what I'm going to call the moral aspects of it all, uh, the conversations that we know need to happen, in my case, around the city, with other schools, and with each other on a real basic level. Um, we've got to really understand the fractures that we're all dealing with, you know, the places, the relationships, and we've got to reopen connections that we uh, reopen and, re and, and try to establish some of those connections that aren't there. Uh, those are important. And, you know, ultimately, we've got to be for, of course, including everyone, making an economy work for everyone, making a social scene and circumstance work for everybody uh, so that people can truly belong and not have to fit in so much. I'm also a big 
proponent of liberal education and how that's got to be something that we figure out how to talk to a larger swath of people about. And we also have to be healers, not just from the uh, from the healthcare standpoint, but we've got to be social healers. Uh, we, we've shown that we can lower risk uh, to behavior and being in spaces together, but I think we've got to show how we can lower the temperature and the heat as well, because we can do that sort of thing. So, you know, we've got to make and remake these places, and we've got to start with, of course, uh, our memories and the ways that we know we can do things well and show some real innovation, social innovation. But we've also got to reestablish some connections. And I think, for, in my case, it's a real conversation, I'm sorry, a real connection with a city, uh, and that the university plays more of a social role in this city. Uh, more of, I, I dare say, political role. And that's the other thing, too. I think that we've been afraid of politics for a long time. Uh, we, we're going to have to engage in the politics of the place where we are. And we're going to have to provide services not just to our students or people we call our students, but to the citizens of the community uh, as well that uh, also buttress us in terms of where we sit. And I hope that maybe there's some room in the future for a deeper look at structuring the society, government, and real service that comes out of the people who use our institutions. It's almost like the trade-off. We say to the city, uh, for all the tax breaks and everything else that you give us, uh, we will provide for you and we will put our bodies, our minds, and our, our resources back into the city, whether it be through our research, whether it be through our own hands and our own making as well. I'll stop there. Thank you, Ken. Nick? Good morning, folks, and, and uh, Dr. Coleman, thank you for inviting me uh, to sit with this group. It's an honor. Um, I had a couple of thoughts to build on uh, what the previous uh, two present presenters uh, mentioned. I said, for, for, first of all, I think I'm looking around quickly. All of us are old enough to remember a university that uh, was largely devoted to new knowledge, the development of new knowledge. Uh, it had a certain... Uh, endpoint that we needed to uh, look at, which was increasingly uh, expecting people to pass difficult exams, to uh, demonstrate uh, a, a significant scholarship at the end point of their work. Um, I think we're really different now uh, as, a, as colleges and universities. We're increasingly attracting folks into our community that had not been uh, included before on a variety of different uh, levels. And our call, especially I think in, in this day, is not just to develop new knowledge. In fact, I think that, that there will always be a place for that in the academy. There'll always be a place for that kind of scholarship. But we're increasingly looking to uh, bring workers into our society, bring facilitators into our society. As Dr. Elmore says, we're healers into our society, not necessarily people with a license, uh, but folks that can convene, connect, can do things. Uh, that's what higher education is called upon to do. Uh, and so uh, curriculum needs to be informed. I, I listened to Dr. Polk Davis's uh, uh, podcast, spoke eloquently about the critical importance of having the community inform what it is that we teach. That needs to be a much more open reciprocal uh, uh, communication uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the upcoming uh, years. Uh, for me, as a psychoanalyst and a, and a clinical psychologist uh, and an academic uh, person, uh, we all are seeing the tremendous uh, need on our campuses for mental health care. 
and so that 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 invites me to say I think we need to do a lot of thinking about how we run our learning communities uh, for students in 2021, 2022, and the next uh, upcoming years. We have 35% of our students talking about anxiety, depression, PTS, uh, substance use disorder, 35%. uh, And it's probably higher than that, people think. Uh, And when you ask them what they mostly are concerned about, they're concerned about their academic performance. So they're not concerned about the relationship they had. They're not concerned about the substance use that they may or may not be doing. They're not concerned about uh, the leadership in Washington doing or not doing what it's uh, uh, doing or not or not doing. Uh, they're worried about their performance. Uh, to me, a lot of growth and development happens uh, in 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 the learning communities that we create. Uh, In many respects, I've written the things that are broken from the pandemic, the mental health things that are broken, the isolation, the disconnection, the trauma. Uh, Learning communities like ours are the perfect antidote for that. You don't get to be in a space with a better opportunity to relate. You don't get to be in a space where if you've learned helplessness, you can learn or rediscover your agency uh, and the opportunity to do, right? So our learning communities are wonderful. Uh, if you if you look at an 18 year old with a fuzzy face uh, and a guy at 22 with a beard, uh, the the tra- the physical transformation of what happens to a freshman and a senior through their their journey with us is amazing. You know, issues of identity, issues around uh, relationships to other sexuality, issues relating to substance and role definition. I mean, tremendous growth that happens. So I think a we need to make sure that we're paying attention to the social emotional development of our uh, undergraduates, especially and our graduate students and the way we encourage K to 12 people to do. Uh, and we don't do that still. We're still an ivory tower in many respects uh, in, and, and governed by those same uh, old principles. Byzantine, did somebody say that uh, word earlier on, right? So uh, governed by those old principles. And we absolutely positively need to learn the lesson of this pandemic and say, there's a tremendous need for us to steward the emotional and social development of the folks that we house with us and and connect and collect uh, with us for the four, five, six, seven years uh, that they're with us. Uh, And I think, you know, I'll get in trouble, but I'm a former Jesuit and I've been an academic for a long time, so I'm not an anti-intellectual. I need to. I think we need to rethink how we assess people's competence in that space. I think we really do a damage to people if if we're saying, "Well, I'm really worried about my grades, and that's what I'm in college for." Uh, it's not worth fifty thousand uh, dollars. It's not worth the experience uh, to put people through that. And most of our folks are worried about their grades. They're worried about their performance. They're worried about how much it's costing mom and dad and themselves to send them there. We've got to help people with that and find ways people work collaboratively on teams, do different ways of demonstrating, take time for things. Uh, that's on us. That's on us. So I'll stop and let Dr. Ender speak. Go. Damn. All right, Nick, it's just Pam. Okay. <laughs> I still call I still call Dr. Coleman Dr. Coleman when I'm with him. So <clears throat> Yeah, well, you know, there, there there's that the great respect that we have for how I grew up, yeah. For Dr. Coleman. Um, it's interesting listening to my colleagues around the table because 
community, there is always a sense when we have these conversations about the transformation or on the cusp of transformation of, of higher education, as if higher education is a monolith. Um, close to 50% of our undergraduates are at community colleges across the nation, whether it's California, Massachusetts, or anywhere else. And the average age of my students is not 18 or 17 or even 22, it is 28. And I can assure you that education, higher education is not at the center of their lives. Um, three out of five of my students are parents. Half of them are single parents. About three quarters of my students are living in the lowest two quintile of income. Almost all of them work. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, it takes more than two years to do a two-year degree because they're doing a quarter of a year at a time. Um, so when I, when I look at those complex um, socioeconomic data points for my students, um, I, I think about, you know, I try to think about a, a conceptual graphic. And the only thing I can think of at the moment is that in the late Tokugawa period in Japan, which is the last feudal period, um, the population lives in castle towns. And in castle towns are surrounding a castle. So around the castle, there is a moat. So the tradesmen are on the outer moats and the farmers are on the outer moats and the elite and the, and the governing um, shoguns are on the inside in the castle. And I feel like sometimes when we talk about higher education, we are living in castle towns. We're the elite in the, in the, in the middle, inside the, the, the moat or inside the wall, are speculating about who the heck is outside towing their fields or creating their trades or, or, or making their window blinds. It is really difficult for me to think about that there would be huge transformation inside the castle if the structure of our social contract has not changed, mm. right? So the, I, when I see the social contract uh, post-World War II, I see, okay, we're going to lift everybody into the middle class. We need to have better health care, better housing, better transportation, better education. So we have things like the GI Bill, right? Or um, all of these social programs that happen, the, the Truman Commission that is supposed to change educational availability to everyone, and so is birth the community colleges. There are, there are absolutely, no, there has been very few, if any, contributions financially in terms of resources to build the social compact. So the social compact lives in the mind of the people living in the castle, whereas the folks on the outer moat are doing the best we can. And, you know, they don't think about the, the, the social contract or the understanding of education as the center of their lives. It's a luxury because education still is the thing that would get them closer to the castle. Mm -hmm. Yet we never get close enough to the castle because there is no money to travel to the castle. I think what the pandemic has done is not that it destroyed anything, but it shed light on things that are already there which is the, the, the slow disintegration of the social contract that barely existed for people outside the walls. Mm -hmm. And now mm -hmm. the light is shown on it. It says, what social compact, right? So, so when I think about transformation of higher education, I, 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 I don't see, and I'm gonna make fun of Larry and he's not gonna be happy. I don't see Harvard 
changing a heck of a lot in terms of how they see their admissions or, or how they see the percentage of folks um, going into the great selective universities because the idea of meritocracy still lives. And it's not that Harvard doesn't try. I mean, there are all kinds of different things that folks are doing to try to get that mix correct, right? To, to open the doors wider to the other 50% in order to get greater equity and greater mixture of um, socioeconomic and racial balance in the great universities. And, you know, you can see them in different tiers and the selectives and the, and the, and the IV plus and so on and so forth. But frankly, there is, in my mind, there is no impetus for the folks who are living in the castle to change. Mm -hmm. The great impetus is outside the castle, which is can we afford to lose 50% of the talent pool in our undergraduates in order to do the kind of economic and workforce renewal we say we need in order to be competitive in the world? And I, I would posit to you, no. Look at the colleges that have now gone, the selectives that have now gone test-free, right? But the question is not going test-free and how many more applications you get, is what is the results that you have at the end? Is your balance really changing? Moving mm -hmm. three percentage point is not moving. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I worry about the conversation at the castle. Not so much about the conversation outside the walls. You've been having those conversations of moving people in the middle class for a long time. Mm -hmm. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I would love to hear what folks' reaction is to the castle. You know, Pam, you, 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 asked, you, you made a statement that brings up an issue that I've heard a lot, you know, with our, our mutual friend Wick, and he and I had this conversation all the time, is that we think a lot about higher education as this as as this special as the castle and not about adult learning <laughs> and movement into the world and because we focus so much on these historic institutions versus the as you say 50 percent of the population who are l adult learners are not in those institutions how do we Make, how do we change that conversation? How do we understand that maybe these higher institutions roles is quite limited, but real adult learning, real service to the economy, real service to communities, that learning has to be, is out, outside the castle walls. I, 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 think, I think part of it is I have to acknowledge, right? So the community colleges, the historic black colleges and the women colleges, we came about because there is a need because there were nowhere for women to go. There were nowhere for folks who are um, below the middle class to go. And there were nowhere for blacks to go. And therefore those three types of you know, colleges and universities came into being because there's a great need. I think the great need now may actually be driven by our economic place in the world. Um, I am not above taking advantage of the neoliberal tendencies <laughs> in the world in order to forward social progress. Mm -hmm. Because of the great workforce needs in order to keep us on top of the, socio uh, the economic heap 
government is beginning to pay attention. Resources are now going into workforce development and therefore community colleges are coming to the fore because we're in need. And I think other kinds of educational institutions that are not college-like, the credentialing pieces now moving into things like micro-credentialing and badging mm-hmm. and all of that. Knowledge is, is being democratized. My fear though, um, having one foot in both worlds or a foot in the castle and a foot outside the moat, I'm kind of stretched in that way because my education was in the university, right? I was a Barnard, I was at Columbia. I, I know how that works and how important the traditions of liberal arts are, the traditions of value development and civic engagement and development is that even as we lift the folks outside the castle, we have to realize that it cannot be a second-class education of neoliberal economic production only. Mm -hmm. The moral value of the society must make that span. So I'm asking my colleagues in the castle, you know, how do we give the agency back to people outside the castle so they have the, so, so they have the value education, right? So liberal edu- education actually is combined and it's not divorced. And I'm gonna ask the folks in the castle, what are you doing in workforce development that is going to add to the production, mm-hmm. right? Of, of, that, of that economic stability that means middle-class lives for everyone. I think it's a more complex transformation in that we can't just transform in the castle and transform outside. There's got to be a bridge in there that I'm not. Pam, Pam, Pam I'm going to I'm going to um, uh, um, uh, um, disrupt something that you said, which mm. is I, I I think the future uh, uh, the status quo remains if we wait for people in the castle to make movement. Uh, so, 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 so I'm not waiting for the people in the castle to change. I, I want to be the part of the disruption in, in that environment and creating those opportunities. The degree to which I succeed will be a function of how can I collaborate with all of you on this, on this seminar, uh, webinar, and, and, and finding, out, finding out those notions. I mean, I, I use this, I, I use this uh, example a lot where I say, you know, the, the way you change the conversation is you change the people you're talking to. So, so if I'm going to continue to talk to those in the castle, why would I expect anything to change? So, so who are the new people that I need to have these conversations with to start a movement of thinking um, uh, disruptively uh, and, and sometimes that might mean a radical disruption uh, as opposed to a much more uh, um, a sustained approach. And so th- that's where we that's where I think we need to go. So I, I, I have I have shifted my thinking from trying to 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 uh, uh, convince people in the castle that this is what they ought to do and 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 saying what I'm what, empowering myself and my community in order to bridge, make that bridge and engagement in a way that has not historically been present. Can I, 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 can't, I think I cut you off. No, but. no, no. Well, you know, I, I wonder if, uh, you know, to go on with this a little bit more, you know, I, I wonder if we still, I think we still have this, pers- this, this assumption that uh, education's about economic society and economic society totally. 
and uh, that we're still gearing so much. And I wonder if the disruption in the economy that we're currently seeing is going to be sufficient enough so that it makes us think a little bit differently about what our presumptions are about what who we're putting into the world and why we're putting them into the world from our spaces. Uh, and, you know, that was what I wanted to throw out is, is there enough other disruptions that will force us to go there? I, I almost feel like uh, the world's gotten ahead of us a little bit, as it often does, and whether or not we're, we're in a good space there. And I'll say this too, true confession. Um, you know, Pam, I was the guy standing outside the castle walls for so much of my life and saw that I needed to get into the castle uh, to do that. And I'm still trying to get into the ca castle because I, I also don't own this castle, right? There are a bunch of business people who own the castle and uh, they don't think about education the same way that we do. So this, you're gonna, we're going to bless you for this metaphor. Thank you. I, I saw somebody did. Uh, yeah. And so sometimes I feel like I'm the dragon. I don't know whether that's true or not uh, outside the uh, the castle walls. But, you know, I, 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 I think uh, I, I, there's a lot still of the old in the new. So I, I think just to disrupt the disruptor uh, a bit, I, I think we have to talk to everybody. We have to keep talking to everybody. And so Don's right. Let's make sure we're talking to the new bodies in the space to make sure that something happens. But, uh, you know, in Massachusetts, because a number of us have been talking to the legislators, we see millions of dollars, if not uh, uh, a part of the billions of dollars that have come from the higher ed and from the ARPA money and from the relief money uh, is now going to be devoted to training the workforce for mental health. Uh, I needed those folks. We needed those folks in legislature to uh, devote the money, direct the money to this. We've been talking for years to people about this, but I could, and I have, I've talked to a lot of people about mental health, for example, uh, but I need to talk with them too, because they need to be in a space where they deliver what they can deliver. And they had a lot to deliver uh, in this space that will be transformational, I think, for mental health, uh, if we do the right things with it. Um, I think, however, uh, we need to, to rethink what does class mean? And, and uh, you know, this, this day, there, there is no way still, get a Harvard degree, you have class. Uh, mm -hmm. You are a summa cum laude graduate, uh, pick the place, doesn't matter. You have class uh, in that space. We still recognize the currency in that space greatly. Uh, and we're a long way, I, I think we're a long way from saying, you know how you can get through this classy institution? Work with teams, work on pairs, give, you know, we'll kind of look at a way that you acquire your knowledge and skills with teams of people because BS, that's all you're gonna have to go through the rest of your life. Uh, no one's gonna be waiting for you to pontificate uh, and obey you uh, unless you are the emperor. Maybe that, that just to continue our metaphor, but for the most part, the rest of us work, you know, collaboratively. But we're a long way from that. Uh, you know, we're a professional school. We started as a professional school and folks would say, well, you're not a PhD program and you don't have 800 board scores for your folks. So you're second class uh, in that space. And I said, you know, I've been a counselor. I've been a clinical psychologist. I've been a psychoanalyst. Uh, I know that the work that I do isn't done necessarily better because of my advanced degrees than it is by 
uh, a bachelor's holding uh, housewife in space. I mean, the people did those research studies uh, years ago, right? That that a comforting person can deliver care because they're compassionate, uh, because they make connections. We need to be thinking, I have said to people here, uh, about the range of folks to invite into mental health care because A, it's desperately needed, and B, there's no guarantee that if you've got 800 board scores that you are compassionate, connected, you know, able. In fact, I found when I was at when I was at the Harvard Medical School and I was running a, an internship program for PhDs, I often found an inverse relationship with that. You know, the smarter the people were, uh, the less compassionate, attuned, attentive, connected uh, they they were. So we really have to think, rethink. Our our uh, our labels, our goals, our medals, our uh, uh, standards. Uh, I think we can do that uh, real quickly. I think the pandemic has helped us to do that. Uh, never before have we been so humbled as a country as through this pandemic. Never before have there been conversations that all of us have had with people about someone in our family that has. A psychological challenge, a healthcare challenge, a loss of life, a setback in work. It's leveled our country. We all have had that experience at once. All of us have had that experience at once, some more than others, some deeper than others because of the inequities in our uh, society. But we, it's, it's, it's amped up our compassion quotient, I think. It's amped up the opportunity for us to say we are in this together uh, in some way, and we need to get out of this together in some way. Well, thank you. you know, so each of you, so, so Nick, you suggest one of your levels of change is using your position to work with legislators, policymakers, to help them identify what resources they need to bring to drive change in the system. And Don, you suggested one of your levels of change is how do you reach outside of uh, broaden the conversations you're having with people who have not been in the in, inside the castle and lift their voices and find their voices and engage them more actively and provide them using your position of power, opening up some more doors for them so that their voices are heard seriously. So Ken and Pam, what, what would your... What would you see as your levers of change that you focus on to kind of move this system forward? Well, you know, I think one of the levers of change has to be the public itself. Um, you know, I think we've gone a number, a number of years just accepting this. And, you know, the public's got to understand what it wants from higher education. Um, you know, we, we get into this way that we critique it, but we still do the same thing. We still put our resources and our money into the same old thing. And, you know, the, the our methods of accountability are the same old, same old. I think, we, you know, there's got to be, as Don said, this movement within the public, the, you know, for the public to declare these spaces as public spaces, even though they may be private, they, they we act a lot like a public entity. And we've got to say, look, we belong in these spaces. We make these spaces and there's a different thing that we want from these spaces. So I'm going to say the lever of change has got to be the public itself. I, I, I want to respond to, to Nick's comments just now and, because they touched me and I believe in them. Um, that, that just like the title of the series, 
uh, talks about, ultimately, it comes down to seeing students and, and, and our colleagues as individuals, as having, having a mental life and a physical life that we need to nurture and connect. And that we have for so long taken the agency away from the students we serve on, in both sectors, right? And sort of impose certain values, even, and, and, and we forget that what we teach in the classroom about the great traditions and, and the great ideas of, of humanity and caring sometimes does not translate to the actions that we take as institutions. So, so Nick, I really do wanna thank you and acknowledge the fact that it is about um, a, a rich psychological life for our nation. I think that is really important. And, you know, in terms of levers, you know, I look at the historical parallels. Historian, I'm, I'm, I'm a literature major and I feel totally sort of out of, out of my waters when I, when I take, you know, historical concepts like this. So forgive me, those of you who are in history. And I look at the actions that were done by Roosevelt after World War II, right? And I look at what has just been done and going through Congress right now, the infrastructure bill, and the social infrastructure bill. If you look at those two pieces, it really addresses um, the areas that I mentioned before that forms the social com compact, right? You talk about housing, infrastructure, transportation, and, and healthcare. And then on the social infrastructure bill, things like childcare, education, free universal um, higher education. We know what to do. <laughs> It's not as if we don't know what to do. We know what the levers are. The levers are built into both of those bills. And the barriers really are um, the, the, the sort of classes, racial, I want to say, you know, there's a white supremacist structure. There is a um, discriminatory systematic structure that has built the castle and built the wall. Right, so even though people know what to do um, and, and, and the levers are built so that you can push them and there's money attached to them through these bills that are going through Congress, somehow we cannot quite agree whether these things are public goods or private goods, right, to, to Ken's point. And we have so degraded the idea of public good by focusing on stupid things like climbing walls, right, and lazy rivers. That's not what our university is about. That has never been what the castle has been about. And yet the neoliberal idea of education and competition has degraded, I think, those, those ideas. So I think the levers are in multiple places. I think the levers are in the bills that are going through the Congress right now. The levers is in restoring the idea of the public intellectual tie to education. My students should be able to name a handful of five or six people who they know are representing the ideas of higher education and what it means for society, both on the community college side and on the four-year side. We're not loud enough, and when we're loud enough, we're not talking about the right things. Pam, I, I want to suggest, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to stick totally with the frame that you presented at the beginning, but, but I think two things are happening uh, from my perspective that uh, number one is I think many students today um, uh, 
are trying, uh, they're taking an approach that says, as far as I'm concerned, the castle doesn't exist. I'm going to use technology to connect with as many people in a variety of ways, regardless of one's status. You see that in social media. And so, and so in, one, in, one, in one sense, the disruption is happening on the social media. Whether you like the way it's happening, that's a whole other discussion. But, but, but they're saying, for, for, for me, that the castle is irrelevant. I'm going to talk with people wherever they are who want to connect with me in a variety of ways. And how does that play into their educational opportunities, uh, professional development, and how does that transform our society? Um, the, the second thing I want to throw out is I've spent a lot of time not paying so much attention to who's in the castle, but who's the guardian, uh, yeah. who, who, who is at the gate. Yeah. Uh, uh, developing developing those informal relationships with those people who I, I don't I don't need to talk I don't need to talk to the shogun I, I can if I can have a relationship with the guardian at the gate uh, and begin yeah. to talk about shifting paradigms uh, that individual has the ability to influence as much as is capable uh, in those environments. I mean, you know, we sometimes forget informal leadership is sometimes much more effect effective than positional leadership. Um, you know, it's that notion of who do people go to to find stuff out and to get information, uh, whether they're in community or in the academy. And I think using more of those, and, and I think in the last few years, I've, using, I've used more of those informal relationships to move agendas down the road. Now, mind you, um, uh, the, the, the movement in higher education, um, uh, I, I was gonna say is, is happening at the place of a, a glacier, but I realize glaciers are melting a lot quicker okay. these days. So, 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 so that may not be apropos, but, but, but it's, it's a reference point <laughs> to, to simply say that the movements that, that I am hopeful for, uh, as everyone has said, is occurring, but it's not occurring in these traditional ways. And so, and so when you talk about your community partners, when you talk about students who are from low-income first-generation communities, their ability to get what they want uh, uh, are being utilized in very non-traditional ways. The challenge, you know, uh, uh, for, for people like us who, who, who have benefited from, from subscribing, if you will, uh, to the to the the uh, the uh, the pedagogy of the castle is 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 we know what that experience is like because parts of our own experiences come from that. I think the accountability has to be with if you came from outside the castle to use your analogy again, we need to be reminded of that journey and what is required to get where we are and to connect with community partners in a way that allows them to bridge, if you will, and use our own networks to advance those agendas. So, so I offer those as two possible ways of thinking about this. I think community colleges are particularly expert in that, uh, in that space. Uh, they, they look more than universities and colleges to the uh, workforce for direction and for placements for students and for partnerships around promoting and advancing and developing the uh, 
the workforce that already exists uh, and to uh, identify the skills that their graduates need to be uh, in that space. And it, uh, and, and that's a powerful lesson, I think, for all of us to, uh, uh, to, to develop. The, the other thing, so I'm thinking two things. They're really, I'm hopeful that there's somebody in this space that is a children's book uh, author that can help us develop this castle metaphor. <laughs> and I'm looking for somebody to give us uh, some uh, caricatures and cartoons for us to, to look uh, at. Uh, my, 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 really, Japanese, my Japanese uh, colleagues are cringing as I, as I speak. Uh, I think it's been, a, it's been a very useful metaphor. Thank you for that. I do want to have my role be the role of the dragon, though, if I could, uh, if I could, if I could have that. Thank you. Well, I um, have... Um, as I engage with a lot of my students, one of the things that I'm hearing consistently being proposed is that we are badly organized around the important developmental space of 14, 15 to 25 year olds. And that we break them up in very different ways. And they, they live across sectors, whether it's higher ed, the workforce, uh, college prep, non-college prep, vocational. And we don't think of them as a unified development, late adolescent space. And because we don't organize to that and create a community around that developmental space, so many of them fall the cracks. As, as, as Pam suggests, they then come back when they're 28 to kind of restart because there's this kind of lost connection. So I'm wondering what you, in terms of thinking of uh, the reframing of our communities around the kind of traditional higher ed language, which Pam has already said, 50% of the people who touch higher ed don't belong in. Well, does that make sense to you to start thinking more in terms of a late adolescent, a mid to late adolescent organization uh, and not break them up so arbitrarily? Would that be useful at all in terms of thinking about rebuilding our communities? Uh, we're already doing we're already doing some of that, I think, Hardin. I, if you look at some of the most successful um, attainment um, strategies that are going on in secondary and immediate post-secondary, right? So grade, grade 11 and 12, and then moving into um, the first couple of years, couple of two, three years of, um, of undergraduate education. Early college um, has made huge amount of strides. I mean, if you, we, we know that by research, that if you have maybe 15 credits to uh, 15, 18, to 18 credits as you enter um, college, the likelihood of you finishing your four-year degree in four years doubles, right? So, so I, I think for whatever reason, um, secondary education, particularly in large urban environments, um, has not done well by our students. You know, you can look at Boston, look at LA, look at Seattle, um, but one way to lift that attainment is to begin to inject college material into the later years of the last two years before students graduate. You can do that by early college, you can do that by AP, right? You can do that by international baccalaureate. Um, I, I think it has a lot to do, particularly the way that we're doing it now in Boston where we're not skimming the top. We are welcoming students from our communities of color, our communities of poverty, who that has traditionally not um, 
has been plagued by, by sort of a, a, an achievement gap, right? So when we take those students and allow them to move into this college environment, they do really well. So there's an expectation readjustment and maybe things like early college or AP, whatever it is, that connection will work well. I'm looking forward to having our four-year colleagues build that same kind of connection into the first two years of the community college environment. So it's kind of like early senior college, right? So, 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 so there's an identity that forms and there's a belonging that forms. And identity and belonging is really the next, to me, the next iteration of student attainment work that we have not done. Is the other end of that the Northeastern model of moving towards more co-ops and internships? That a lot of you, a lot of four-year places are saying, okay, last couple of years you need to be in yep. your work field, you be doing internships, and we have to build it, and that that will start spreading systematically right. across that development space. But, but we have to be careful policy-wise. Internships that are not paid is an equity problem. Mm-hmm. I will not accept any internship that's not paid for our students with employers because, heck, they're all working. What are they supposed to do? Quit their job and yep. take up a free internship? <laughs> it is, you know, it's these things that, as, um, as Don so eloquently said, that these are the gatekeepers, right? These are the guardians that, that, that keeps our students from having that free travel along that journey. But, you know, it's, it's that overhaul, too, uh, with it. It, yeah. it, it also is, I mean, think about the downstream. We also need employers who are willing to hire people who may not have had a certain kind of narrative uh, in front of yes. them. Um, so, you know, that's got to be an important piece, too. Um, and, and I also I am hoping and I think the pandemic is going to force places like mine to do this. We have to talk differently. And this is to get to your point, Harden, about the the looking at the groupings. We have to talk differently about what success means, right? And we've, we've got to stop doing this thing where you're the best and brightest we've ever had at the institution. And, and you know, we're going to stop throwing test scores out there anymore as the value of who you are. You know, you're, you're much more in your, your SATs, your achievements, and your GPAs. And I think we're starting to talk. We have to start to talk differently about that because of, in our case, a test optional approach that has really thrown those numbers on their head, just just throwing them out of the out of the castle, right? Um, and and we're trying to figure out how we get that back. But uh, we we've got to talk differently so that these young people, or those people in those coal, in those numbers that you talk about, Harden, have a conception of themselves where they could see themselves as 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 making sure that their journey includes some form of education. Uh, I, I'd also like to throw in that I that, you know when push comes to shove, too, this is about being able to pay for this stuff too. Um, and the society does not make enough of an investment in the ways that we can have people make these kinds of journeys. And I think we've got to put more money into, uh, more investments into, uh, people in these age ranges and earlier on, uh, as Pam's mm-hmm. saying earlier on, and it's just, it's just gotta be that way. Well, I know this is, I want to thank you all for this great conversation. I want to give you each a minute to kind of say, this is, um, this is what, this is what you heard, learned. And, uh, and, uh, obviously I would love you saying what you're going to do. So, uh, I, I'm going to go in reverse order. So I'll go Pam, then, uh, Nick, then Ken, then Don. I, I am, I am so grateful 
to have Ken and Don and Nick around the table today on Harden. Thank you for hosting it. Sometimes these are lonely places to work. It has been the most lonely 18 months of my entire career um, to be able to see the hope, but can't figure out how to get there. And, you know, having these conversations give me hope. Um, so I, I'm grateful to, to all four of you. Thank you. Nick? Um, I, I, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> I, you know, maybe, maybe we got to even start with rethinking whether we should call it higher education uh, and find another name. Uh, but looking, looking at the labels, looking at the values, looking at the things that we've historically prized and rethinking that, I think we have, we have that opportunity uh, and we have that responsibility. Uh, looking as we, we it, it's easier for us to look at K to 12 and say, let's look at the social life of young people as they develop and connect with each other and feel engaged and included and can talk to people with power. And can, you know, we, we feel like that's normal development. Um, but whether you, whether you look 17 to 22 or whether you look 22 to 50, uh, the folks in our learning communities are growing and changing and engaging. It's, it's what we're about uh, in that space. And we need to include the other things than academic performance as important aspects of learning and find ways where we can help people uh, attend to those. Uh, and in, including and probably starting with our professors and, and educators and help them uh, to uh, think creatively about their own growth and development and their personal needs and not just expect that they're going to get dressed and stand at the head of the class and, uh, and lead. Um, but once again, I'm, uh, thank you for creating this opportunity. Uh, and thank you all for, uh, for sharing what you did this morning. It's been a pleasure for me. Ken. I'll say the same. Thank you so much for this. I, I like Pam, have been very uh, by myself for a long time now, and uh, and still to some extent, I'm I'm also looking to find that place. And I think what I'm trying to find is that place to a measure of solidarity, um, where it's not just about uh, doing things and following the rules, but really doing things following the rules because it's good not just for me. It's good for all of us, and I can have that level of uh, taking up other people's causes, feeling good about it, and knowing that it's it works for me too. Uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm excited about maybe the notion that uh, we will ultimately start to address the uh, moral pandemic uh, or the effects of the, the, the moral effects of the pandemic that uh, were laid on us as well, or at least opened up again. But uh, thank you, thank you, and thank you for uh, having me here. Uh, I, I am really humble to be amongst uh, the three of you, uh, four of you as well. So thanks for including me, Harden. Yeah, um, Harden, uh, thank you for also, I, I share my colleagues' uh, uh, statements. Um, I, I feel like the last hour has been a preamble. Um, uh, and um, I, I, I'm now ready to go and talk about this even more. Uh, but I know we all have other things we need to do. Um, and, and so um, I, I, I hope this doesn't continue to be a preamble. I'm, I'm happy. I, I, I'm happy to, to have you, uh, uh, Harden, bring us together and just talk about some of these things, uh, you know, in person or in Zoom um, and, and have these kinds of conversations, because I think this is 
this is a space that everybody's looking for that don't necessarily have any uh, many solutions, but also the connection. Uh, and so, as, as many of my colleagues have said, to develop these connections so we can come out of isolation. And what does that mean in, in terms of our environment? I also think that that one of the things that that's the, that's driving me as I think about this today in education is what does it mean? And it's a rhetorical question in a way is what does it mean today, given where we are, when we have articulated as a community, as a society, a strong commitment to social justice, equity, and inclusion? What does that look like? Not that it needs to look the same, but, but we have to move from the model of, I don't need another collaborator that says they're, 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 in, this, they're in this with me. Um, um, uh, I, I want to ask the second question, what are you prepared to do about it? Or what are you doing? And who have you? Uh, and so that's the direction that will be transformative. And, and I know in moving in that direction, particularly in the current uh, political and social environment, it can feel like we can all feel like feel like Sisyphus, uh, you know, every every day. But 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 yet we wake up and we continue to push the rock up the hill. Uh, and so I'm happy to engage in that conversation uh, with my colleagues and with you, Harden, in, in, uh, in, in the future. And so I, I want to thank you for bringing us together. Well, it's been my absolute pleasure. And, and I want to thank you for the time, your, your genesis of your time. And I want to go back to one of, as you know, one of the questions I've asked, uh, asked all the people we've talked to is what would they say to your, your younger self? What, what advice do you gave to your younger self? And all of you and many others in some ways have said the same thing take the risk, push the limit, don't worry about it. And I think following up what Don said, you know, what are the actions we want to take? And, and I'd be delighted to come back on a regular basis just to kind of hear, hear what you've done and, and, and see what we do to be supportive of each other in our risk-taking and our care for others. So again, thank you very much and you have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to Caring, Character, and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. The development of this podcast is made possible with the generous support from the BU's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development and a grant from the Kern Family Foundation. Thanks also to Lizzie Barquet for her editorial and production work on this podcast. The music you're, listening, you're hearing is Bluesy Vise by Doug Maxwell, produced by Media Right Productions. I'm Hardin Coleman, and thank you so much for listening.